Welcome back to the Power of Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today it's my great pleasure to be joined by two fantastic coaches. I'd like to introduce Bill Hammeter and Michelle Goodall. They are the women's US national team head coach and assistant coach for SIP Volleyball. Uh, Bill has been at the helm and also the high performance director for, I believe, about 13 years and has been uh, to four Paralympic Games, winning two silver and two gold medals. And Michelle has been both the team leader and the assistant coach for the women's national team since about 2016. Welcome to the podcast, Bill and Michelle. Thank you. It's good to be here. Yes, thank you for having us. Bill, can you give us a little bit of background on yourself and how you got into coaching sit volleyball? Uh, sure. Like a lot of people, um, I got started with uh, some coaching in college. And through the course of that, uh, started a couple of volleyball clubs and things like that. But I started doing some high-performance program work with USA Volleyball. And... Uh, one thing kind of led to another. And in 2001, after the Sydney Games, the uh, U.S. Paralympic, uh, Olympic Paralympic Committee wanted to make some changes. And during that change, they uh, looked for a head coach at that time for the men's team because we only had the men's team. And so in 2001, I became the sitting team head coach. I'd had some background, uh, I have a master's in adaptive education. And so I think that helped in that uh, changeover some as well. But that was a very part-time basis. But then in uh, 2009, I was hired full-time by USA Volleyball as the head coach at that time for both the men and the women's team and also the high-performance director. Two years after that, we hired a men's coach and um, that's kind of where I'm at now is uh, high performance director and the women's head coach. Wow. Yeah. That was obviously a, a pretty heavy two years doing all three positions. <laughs> it definitely was. <laughs> and Michelle, can you give us some of your background? Absolutely. I have been coaching my entire life as well. It seems just as Bill, I started coaching when I was in college. It's been the only profession that I've had. And so I've been doing it for 30 some years now. Started with the indoor standing game, dabbled some in beach, and found the adaptive side of sport, I would say about a decade ago, maybe a little longer. When I was working within the Iowa region, I was on the Paralympic Commission for USA Volleyball. And that's when Bill and I met and we we were just connected. And then in 2016, the beginning of 2016, he asked me to come on um, as the team leader for this particular team. And I did that. And then in early, late 2018, early 2019, a position opened and I took on the head resident coach position for our team and the assistant overall team coach. And so I've been with the team you know, since early 2016. Wow. Yeah. So can you tell us a bit about the sport of SIP volleyball? What sort of impairments are 
eligible to compete in the sport and what are some of the physiological demands and how does it differ from able-bodied volleyball? Well, as far as you know, some of the things that classify an athlete for our sport can be like uh, quite a few other sports. Any physical you know, disability would classify them as long as it reaches a certain degree of disability. But most of our players that we see are going to have amputations of some type and or muscular atrophy or some things like that. So like we have some athletes that were born with drop foot. So there's a muscular dif- differential between, you know, one leg and the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so like a polio, somebody with that had polio or something like that would classify uh, for the sport. But we also, you know, we have leg amputations, uh, low and high arm amputations, hands, things like that. Basic classification on some of that. They can also, you know, miss a certain number of fingers and some things like that that would also classify them. But uh, that's the general rule. Because our sport has such high need for quad strength and sitting and reaching and holding, uh, you know, posture, Mm -hmm. We don't see a lot of spinal cord injuries and things like that within our sport. Right. And so, and Michelle, the differences between able-bodied volleyball and sit volley, what are, are their similarities and what are the big differences? There are differences in the rules. I guess the most obvious when one is watching the game is we're sitting and our court size is smaller and our net is shorter than the able-bodied game. There are some other rules that, If you're watching, you'll notice right away, especially if you're familiar with both disciplines, that you could block a serve in sit volleyball, and you cannot do that in standing volleyball. Back in the day, you could, but they took that out. And also, there aren't any, like, line violations based on your feet. And Like in the standing game, they would call those foot faults. We, you know, base everything with your location on the court based on where your your bottom is or your butt is Mm -hmm. and then I guess the other most noticeable one would be the contact with the floor when you're when you're playing the ball that you need to have contact with the floor otherwise it's considered what they call a butt lift so you need to have either your one butt cheek or like your backside or even if you're rolling on your back into your one of your shoulders, mm-hmm. one of those um, body parts would definitely have to be in contact with the floor when playing the ball. They have loosened that up a little bit to recognize really high athletic plays while you're in the backcourt. They'll allow you to, you know, essentially dive for the ball. But um, those are the the main rule changes. We're experimenting with some others that basically involve the the flow of the matches right now but those are the the main ones bill am i am i missing any of the main rule differences i think liz depending on uh, what countries might be listening to this uh, podcast there could be some differences we do go by the international rule so it's one entry and six subs which for the People in the U.S., that's going to be a little bit different than what they're used to as far as high school and college. But internationally, that would be the same. Mm-hmm. Also, to be just a little more technical, height of our net for the women is a meter five. And for the men, it's a meter 15. Okay. And then the size of the courts, a six meters wide by 10 meters long. Our attack line is a two meter line. 
So it's about the size of a half of a quart of a standing quart. Right. Great. That gives us a pretty good picture of what it looks like. And so the primary physiological demands that you see, you said that needs a lot of quad strength. That's right. Yeah. And core upper body stability. Mm-hmm. So I guess what, what areas do you work on the most in terms of that physiological development with your athletes? Well, and I also, there's more than just that. I think that the core strength is a high, well, it needs a high level of strength, but also, you know, the hip movements, shoulders, you know, hands, things like that, because the athlete has to propel themselves on the court using legs if they have them and their arms to move. So, you know, usually the shoulders and arms get twice the workout in sitting as what like a standing player would with just swinging. Mm-hmm. So in a lot of our, our work, we do a lot of core exercises whenever we're uh, doing our conditioning, things like that, you know, both with weights and then also just with our own body weight, things like that, uh, that have been di- designed for them. You know, a lot of band work as well with some of that. We have to do quite a bit of work with our shoulders as well. So we'll do a lot of band work with that as well as, you know, our weights and things, especially because of the swinging motions and things as well as, and the movement. We see a lot of forward rotation and shoulders. So we have to do a lot of back work as well mm-hmm. to try to make sure we're creating a good posture, bringing those shoulders back, things like that. Mm-hmm. Cool. And so you said that there's a resident program, Michelle, you're you're in charge of that. Can you give us an idea of how often your athletes train, how many of them are court sessions versus gym sessions, and also how often you've got competition? Sure. Um, our resident program is full-time, and by that I mean we, when we're in training, we're training Monday through Friday two hours on the court, and then twice a week, they'll spend two hours up in the weight room. And we will add on to those hours with, you know, strength and flexibility work with our athletic trainer. And we have a periodization chart. So throughout the course of the year, there will be times when we are a little less intensive. But for the most part, if you, you know, across the board, we, we train daily, you know, Monday through Friday for those two hours. When we will come off a big event, mm-hmm. like let's say the Paralympics, we will have some full recovery period where we aren't meeting and the athletes are on a full recovery. And those um, in those periods, the athletes will then just be encouraged to do some cross training just to keep their, you know, their base level of fitness where we need it, but we won't be in the gym together as a team. Mm -hmm. And then there are some periods where we'll be on partial recovery, where they'll just be working on their strength and conditioning, and we won't be utilizing the gym for the volleyball skills. But for the most part, our resident program is Monday through Friday, Mm -hmm. about 10 hours a week. And how many athletes do you have in that program? Sure. We have, I would say, it honestly depends on where we are in the quad. We have anywhere between five 
and 12 athletes and residents. And I would say that that's, that's a pretty accurate number based on where we are on the quad. Like when we're leading into either like world championships or the Paralympics or another major event, more of our athletes will come and move to our Paralympic training site and stay with us. Mm -hmm. But on the daily, throughout the course of the year, we have, you know, between six and probably six and eight athletes that are there with us every day. And so those other athletes, they're still at home in their home environment with presumably family or work commitments and and they're training kind of in a club format or how do they usually get looked after? Right. We call those our non-residents and those athletes, you hit it on the head, they are living in their own home communities. They are um, working out with the advice of our strength coach. And we are communicating back and forth via video. We've got a a video upload system where we'll review what they're doing and we'll give them the feedback. Mm -hmm. They have a little bit smaller commitment. They train three days a week with their skills and then two days a week with their strength. And then we communicate weekly with them and through that video, that video feedback analysis. And Liz, because we're not totally a resident program, we're resident and non-resident program, we also have camps throughout the year. Mm -hmm. So about seven to eight times during the year, we bring all of our athletes together and we'll train in a camp format as well. That's usually a, a three or four day format where we'll train you know, a couple times a day, you know, it's more systems driven at that point than skill driven, but we certainly at certain times of year, year will work on skills and stuff as well. And so by systems, you're sort of more talking about the actual game approach, the tactics, who you're playing against and just the roles that each player has. Correct. Yeah. Our offensive systems, defensive systems, you know, what's our lineups going to look like? How do we make our substitutions? You know, those types of things. And how important has it been for you to have that resident program? Well, yeah, we've had the resident program since 2005, and we started it with the men, uh, and then quickly some of the women started coming over, and then we broadened it out mm-hmm. from there. Yeah, our resident program has been, in my estimation, most critical factor in our success. I like to say, and I, I don't have any scientific research to back it up, just my own experience, but we can usually take an athlete that's in residence and in one year get them where we want them to be that would take us about three to four years if they were just training in camps and at home. So it's a huge, huge difference. Yeah, so massive. And and the support structure that you have around that program, whether that's the resident program or the camps-based program, you've been able to develop that over the years as well in terms of you have designated strength and conditioning coaches, sports psychologists, sports dietitian, and other support systems, correct? Yes. We, like I, I talked about, you know, when I first started, I was very part-time as the head coach, you know, with the men. And then we hired a women's coach at that time, still part-time. Mm. And then Whenever they hired me full-time, there were two of us that were full-time and all of our support staff, whether it be, you know, our assistant coaches or anybody else were were either all volunteer for the most part. We didn't pay them anything. 
and so we just kind of gradually continue to move and be able to build and grow as we tried to hire, you know, could afford to hire different people uh, like Michelle, you know, and so um, we've been very fortunate uh, that USA Volleyball has supported our program very heavily, uh, which is a, mm-hmm. you know, on the Paralympic side is something that you don't always see, but nice. um, yeah, we even have a, I call her a chef. I guess she just, you know, depends what the terminology you want to use, but a cook, but she's a chef that cooks at all of our camps. So she cooks all of our meals. She works with our dietitian so that we have, you know, the meals prepared there, you know, for our athletes. So they're getting the nutritional input that they need. And, you know, those are all things that we just try to continue to, I like to say, beg, borrow, or steal however we can to put those things together. (laughs) Yep. The things you can do on a shoestring. Yeah. It's true. Absolutely. (laughs) And your competition schedule, is there a a local competition within the U.S. that your players can compete in, or is it mostly the opportunities that they get when there's international tournaments? Uh, we don't have a domestic league of any type. We do have have had some tournaments at a few different cities at different times in the year. Most of our national team players don't participate in those regularly, but they can. But then we have a national championship uh, at our USA Volleyball Opens. Uh, so we have a sitting division there. Mm-hmm. And up until COVID hit, we had between eight or 10 teams that were participating in that. Right. And so, you know, that's good competition. But most of our competition for our players are international competitions. So we usually will have two or three domestic competitions a year with either one or two teams in each one of those. And then we usually will have two or three international tournaments a year. Mm -hmm. And so how does a new potential player get involved in sit volleyball what opportunities and and what's the pathway well i have somebody that you know works in our offices that part of his role is sport development and player identification so he goes to you know different sports opportunities things like the endeavor games that are you know multi-sport type of tournaments for uh athletes with disabilities. And so, you know, he'll look for athletes that way. We'll go to other types of camps, things like that. You know, we just try to find athletes however we can. Mm -hmm. Another thing that's been successful for us is, you know, because of Title IX here in the U.S., there's just so many female players that are playing the game of volleyball. We find that there's quite a few athletes that have a disability that are playing for their high school or for club ball, things like that. And so we've been able to identify them and then bring them into our program. We have a national team development program. So that's usually the player's first stop uh-huh. and they'll begin to train there. Mm-hmm. And then either as a player develops and, and gets you know good enough to be able to pull them up to train with the national team, we'll do that or if we have players that retire and need to move players up, that's usually where we'll draw them from. But, Mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning, we just took any live body pretty much, you know, and try to develop them the best we could. (laughs) So we've come a long ways, I think, in that regards. And I think that's been very helpful for us. 
you know, on the men's side, it's a little more yeah. difficult because there's not as many men that are playing the game of volleyball. So we get a few that have played and then we just transition them, you know, to the floor. But most of the time there, we're just looking for good athletes that we try to bring them into the resident program and teach them the game. Uh-huh. Okay. So they may, may come from all sorts of different backgrounds and maybe not always a strong sporting background either. Yeah, that'd be correct. And so what's the age range of, say, your national team at the moment? Well, on the women's side, we have 18-year-old and our oldest is 39 or so. Mm-hmm. But we have had as young as 14, 15-year-olds on the team and as old as 42, yeah. 43 on the team. Right. So there's a fair bit of longevity. That is correct. Yeah, we've been able to you know, work with the athletes, one, a little bit because of funding that we keep trying to push so that they at least have some support that's helped, you know, them to be able to stay around, but also physically just trying to continue to work with them so that they can stay in the game longer. Yep. And on the men's side? Yeah, on the men's side, our our athletes have a tendency to be older, partly because we find them usually later as athletes and then just transition them into the game. But we do have, like, our youngest men player right now is probably 20, I think. Right. They'll jump from 20 up to 28 to 30 pretty quick, you know. Yeah. Okay. And, Michelle, what do you see uh, some of the nutrition challenges your athletes face? Like, what are some of the common themes that come through from a a sports nutrition perspective? Well, I think for all amputees, we're we're concerned about their bone density. Mm -hmm. And so we do yearly, if not, you know, every other year, like DEXA scans and our, between our team doctors and our ATC and our dietitian, they work closely to monitor like the micronutrients that our athletes may or may not have deficiencies in with yearly physicals and blood work and you know, EKGs in alongside those DEXAs. So mm-hmm. we have been lucky to have the, you know, the expertise afforded to us through these caretakers that are a part of our team. And so they really are are on it and work with the athletes one-on-one in, in the space where they, you know, may have a deficiency or just overall general health on what we can help them. Our particular program, you know, post-workouts, we make sure that they have nutrition available in recovery sense. And we are really aware of their intake when they're with us. Of course, when they're not with us, we don't necessarily have you know, we're not hovering over them, making sure that they're making the best, you know, dietary choices. But yeah, um, yeah. our dietitian um, has done a really good job of educating. And so the ladies are becoming more and more confident in their day-to-day nutritive choices, yeah. even when they aren't with us. So I think I think all of that together, we're, we're getting better. We're getting better. The resources are there. Yeah. And we're, we're seeing some great gains in that regard. Is, we see a, uh, quite a bit of some of what you would see, I think, in either the general population or especially the athletic population of some 
low uh, vitamin D or iron, you know, deficiencies, things like that too, that we're having to try to work with the athletes on Mm -hmm. hydration, you know, is another big one that we try to work with a lot. And you know how that goes. Yes. Some athletes are great with it. Some not as good. And that's the same thing as, you know, with them fueling and, you know, trying to remember about their recoveries, uh, things that we talk about, you know, repair, rehydration, you know, replenishing the the glycogen, those types of things. It is that learning process like like Michelle was talking about. Some do a lot better job than others, but, you know, it's something that we're continuing to work with. And do you see the benefit of that in terms of their ability to sustain their training level and, and, and really adapt to that training? That could be a Michelle question as well. Sometimes on the resident side, <laughs> she experiences that as well. I, I think sometimes <laughs> we'll see when they have been on a recovery session that they may not have been um, fueling as well as they should have. So it takes us a little bit longer to ramp up, you know, and get back to our energy outputs that we would really like to have. Mm-hmm. But Michelle, I don't anything to add to that. Yeah, yeah I, can, I can speak to that too. And I would say, yeah, every, every little bit of energy that we've put into this facet of their whole being um, has been helpful. It's, you know, when we're tracking their nutrients and making sure just even at the simplest level that they are able to perform at their highest level. I think that is an obvious gain on our part. And then down to like Bill indicated their hydration levels, all of those things really affords them the opportunity to get their most efficient output. And that helps us in our training. This is this is not like for a short training camp. We're not here for like one event. This is for life. Yeah. And so all of their the education that they've been afforded has been really helpful. And those that are really, you know, dialing in and making great choices and listening to all of that, I think we're we're seeing we're seeing the gains, not only in their, you know, their physical strength, but yeah. in their I don't know. I feel like it even carries over into their like emotional well-being and mm. you know how how strong strongly connected they are with the sport when they're feeling good they're they're more likely to be in a a better mood as well those kinds of things. Yeah, huge impact on not a, pe- a lot of people kind of recognize the impact that you know good nutrition and also fueling adequately. Like it's a pretty intense sport at times, isn't it? There's a lot of high right. intensity play, and if you're under fueling, that can impact both on performance but also on just how you're feeling in general in terms of that mood and and your mental acuity and 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 the decision making that you have. So I think it kind of interplays on both sides of that. 100%. We've really made a lot of changes on things like, like hydration, where used to, you know, we'd give them a break to go to the bench to, you know, get water, get their water bottle, whatever. And we've kind of made some changes to say, keep your water bottle wherever you need it so you can constantly get water. You don't have to wait for a break, even though we'll still give you those breaks. But you know, we want to keep you hydrated, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that's probably more education, not only for them, but for us that, mm-hmm. you know, as we continue to see, 
you know, the research that comes out is something that we have to continue to make changes from the old school, like when I was, you know, growing up and things. So uh, <laughs> we, we keep modifying as we can. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, it's a learning curve for everyone, isn't it? In terms of you've been in, in the sport for such a long time and the, has the sport ch- itself changed over that time? Like since you first started yeah. nearly 20 years ago, how has the sport changed? Well, I think the sports changed like most sports are players are more athletic, they're taller, they're stronger. Uh, so, you know, that adds to the intensity of the game. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the speed of the game, it's much faster now than what it used to be. And, you know, we do more things on the court than what we used to do when I first started. You know, things of, mm-hmm. if you watched our systems of play now, you really couldn't tell a whole lot of difference in some of them as in if somebody was watching the standing game, you know, we use back row setters, you know, so they'll penetrate from the back row, come up, those types of things. Whereas Mm -hmm. in the beginning, um, especially on the women's side, nobody used a back row setter. Everybody used a front row setter. Right. Um, You know, I think we, we kind of pushed the limits on some of those types of things, but you know, now the, top teams in the world all are using, you know, back row setters and things like that. Yep. So, you know, I yeah, think and the, like physical, said, the physical capabilities of being able to set effectively from the back row is you definitely need that height and that strength and, you know, in order to be able to do that effectively. Well, and speed, the speed of movement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think, you know, that, that's always been a big key for me. I'm big on movement types of stuff. So the more efficient, and stronger moves that they can make, the more of those types of things that we can do. Yep, cool. One of the things I like to kind of ask my the coaches that I talk to is any recommendations that they have for uh, athletes who are coming into the sport in terms of just preparing themselves and, and getting themselves into a good position to move forward. What recommendations would you have for newer athletes who are coming into the sport? Uh, I think one thing is just understand volleyball is volleyball. So, you know, if they've played volleyball at all, it'll transition to the floor and so that they can have fun with it. And that's the first part of it. Just enjoy the game and have fun. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the second part of that for us in the sitting game, movement is paramount. And it is difficult. And part of that, the movements that we do on the court are not things that we practice in our daily lives. Mm-hmm. You know, we don't, in daily living, we, you know, we'll walk with a stride. We don't even think about it. Mm-hmm. And so when we sit on the floor and we do things like we talk about uh, bicycle kicks or uh, heel pushes and heel pulls and things like that, it's a neuromuscular thing as well. And so, our athletes are having to learn those types of skills. And so that's another thing I would tell new athletes is just move as often as much as you can, try different techniques and just stick with it. It's not going to happen, you know, overnight. uh, But the more you do it, the more your brain learns and your neuromuscular builds and that they can be more efficient and proficient at it. Mm -hmm. Cool. And 
I guess one of the things I forgot to ask you about, you've, have you had a few athletes who've had kids and, and come back to the sport, like have had a little bit of a break to have a child and then come back? Have you had a few players doing that? Michelle, you want to hit that? Sure. We have a pregnant mama right now and we have a athlete that was pregnant at the Paralympics, but then just delivered in January. So yes, yeah. we do. Um, Awesome. I think currently on our team, we have the, the one athlete that's currently pregnant. She has another child at home. And then the mm-hmm. athlete that just delivered has four children now. So wow. do we have, do we have six grandchildren? Is there, are there more Bill for our athletes? I think, <laughs> yeah, I think right that, now we, that, yeah, I think, that we know about that. Yeah. Six yeah. that we know about. We have six grandkids. Yeah. yeah. So, um, <laughs> I think, yeah, we do. We absolutely do. And just, you know, really encourage them. They take the time that they need. They work with the physicians and our athletic Mm -hmm. trainer on what's appropriate for them as far as their return and the speed to return. And, you know, for the most part, these two athletes are, are planning to return and, Yeah, yeah, we just work with them on an individual basis, but we do, we do have some athletes in that position. We're fortunate to have here in the U.S. uh, the Women's uh, Sports Foundation, and they've also helped, I think, with some grants and stuff like that to help our players uh, that have children, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that helps those players to be able to, you know, find babysitters and to travel with them if they need to and some things like Mm -hmm. that. And, you know, especially on the Paris side, Mm -hmm. that's very, very difficult because these players just don't make enough money to be able to afford those types of things. Mm -hmm. And our NGBs, you know, aren't able to uh, pay for those types of things. You know, it's not like, uh, I know with U.S. soccer on our women's side, you know, they have built into their contracts where they have nannies that travel with them and things like that. Well, you just don't see that on the Paris side. Mm -hmm. So. That's been a huge, huge yeah. benefit yeah. for our yeah. for our ladies as well. And do you find that they come back stronger, or that they have a different body framework when they come back to the sport after having a child? And or are there different sort of things that you have to work on with them? I think it's a lot like you know any follow up to a pregnancy. They um, you know have been out a while as far as on the court and moving and things like that. But, you know, they, they try to keep up their strength. So like our mm-hmm. athlete that is pregnant right now, I mean, she's still coming in twice a week and lifting and stuff like that. And she's eight months pregnant, I think. Yep. So, you know, I think from that side of it, it helps them to come back to the sport a little mm-hmm. bit quicker. Um, but yeah, you know, I think, they're more motivated sometimes when they come back because they've missed it so much. Mm. And, uh, you know, then we just have to put in the work on the floor, I think, and get them, you know, used to the movement again and the stresses of those different body movements, you know, and the stresses on the muscles, those types of things. Michelle, I don't know thoughts on that. No, I would, I would agree with you on that, especially the women at this particular level. They're, you know, they're like Bill indicated, they're very motivated to come back and they do the work and they put the work yep. in and mm-hmm. 
if there are any, you know, like body changes and those kinds of things, it's very, it's very minimal and they continue to work on, you know, floor movements and hip flexibility and all of those things yep. when, they, when they come back. And as you say, that, that that's not a natural movement pattern for, for anyone on their day-to-day lives. So it's always going to be, if you have a bit of time out from that, it's a bit like swimmers needing to feel the water again. It's you know much the same in terms of just getting right. used to that in really specific sports pattern that needs to needs to come into play right yeah shoulder strength I mean on the day-to-day they're walking instead of pushing on the ground so wrists shoulders those kinds of things yeah right Mm -hmm. cool do you have any recommendations for potential sit volleyball coaches you know how do they get into coaching and what recommendations would you have for for them in terms of developing their coaching skills I think um you know, first thing I would do, depending on what country somebody might be in, is try to find, you know, the national governing body for uh, sitting volleyball in that country and contact them. Let them know that they're, mm-hmm. uh, you know, would like to get into the coaching, and I'm sure they could help them. Our um, federation, International Federation World Para Volley, has some different educational components for coaches and some of those are free of charge that they could go to their website and look at but i think uh, you know in lieu of some of those things if they know of any coaches that are involved in the game that's probably the quickest and easiest way is to try to find a mentor mm-hmm. that can help them through some of those transitions and thoughts and things and you know what are some of the things that are different? What are you going to see different than in the standing game or, you know, some things like that. So uh, they can help in those thought processes or what to look at and what are the kinesthetic things that you look at more on the para side than what you would on the standing side and you know, those types of things. Yep. Mm-hmm. Okay, great. So I'm pretty much asked all the questions that I wanted to ask. Is there anything else that you feel is worth including? I don't know if it's worth including, but I would just encourage those coaches to kind of piggyback off what Bill was indicating, anybody that's interested in the sport, just to start asking questions. You know, I know this is a podcast that may be specifically for the, you know, the nutrition side. There are a lot of like free resources and individuals that would be happy to help that might specialize in the dietary needs of athletes that are in the adaptive sport coaches that most coaches that I know, I haven't met one yet that isn't interested in talking shop. (laughs) So if anybody, you know, Bill and I will probably both put our names and um, contact information out there that if anybody would like to reach out to us, um, we'd be happy to entertain those conversations and help point individuals in the right direction as well. Great, great. Well, thank you both for your time. That I like to finish off my podcast by asking what your favorite food is. So, Bill, do you want to go first? What's your favorite food? Seafood. Any sort of seafood? Almost all of it. I love um, <laughs> I like crab. I like shrimp a lot. I like fish, both saltwater and freshwater, like trout, salmon. I eat quite a bit of, you know, salmon. Mm-hmm. So that's probably by far my favorite. Great. And Michelle? Oh, my goodness. 
I uh, balance is everything, right? Isn't that right? <laughs> <laughs> My, I have such a I, I have such a sweet tooth, so I would have to say dark mm-hmm. chocolate. But then I also am in love with all vegetables. Uh. I, I I don't know if there's any oh olives. I, I'm not a fan of olives, but other than that, and maybe those fall in the fruit category. Yeah, I was going to say um, technically I all think vegetables are. <laughs> yeah, yep. yep, they are. But all vegetables, I love vegetables and sweets so. <laughs> there's balance in my life doesn't doesn't every female have a dessert stomach yes that's i think that's it exactly dark chocolate and vegetables <laughs> <laughs> they're a good combination great antioxidants oh, exactly well right. thank you yeah. both so much i really appreciate your time i know you're busy and and got lots of things on so i appreciate your time We'll look forward to continuing to see some great things come out of USA Volleyball and and SIP Volley. And thanks again. Thank you so much for having us. Yeah, thanks for having us. And also thank you for what you are doing, Parasite, and for what you did when you were in the the U.S. Right. uh, We appreciate all that you do. 100%. Bill and Michelle have a wealth of experience in the sport of sit volleyball and I think their advice to athletes in terms of being patient with learning new skills is great as well as their advice to potential coaches in regards to getting mentors in the para space for the specific technical side of things. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. Please let us know if you have any feedback or any people that you'd like to hear from and hope you'll join us next time.